we prep episodes with a bunch of junk to make us sound smarter right which we aren't smarter but today i was like solitude just doesn't feel like an episode you should prep it should just sort of it's about being quiet you should let go of that part of your brain right yeah and paul maybe you can introduce our listeners to a little bit about yourself what you do now why you think i brought you on this show (laughs) yeah just some history of who you are and how we know each other i actually kind of wanted to start with a uh, question for you. Well, I mean, why do you guys want to uh, talk about solitude? Why do you think it's it's important? Oh, because I'm terrible at it. There is this troll, and you know, we try to talk about the trolls of life, whether they're out external or internal. And sometimes I think an internal troll is the inability to be alone. And you know, you and I have had many talks about this. You like a lot of the famous monks, and you like to read a lot about them, and you've spent time at a monastery. I mean, it is a little bit of a paradox, right? There's there's um, this this monk Thomas Merton, uh, who I really love, and and he's got a, a chapter in one of his books. He says, you know, ask me about my vow of silence, which is a weird thing, right? You're, he, he, Merton was was a contradiction in so many ways, um, uh, not least in that he was a famous hermit. Like a famous monk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Paradoxical there. I can tell you, uh, I'll say a little bit about how Nate, Nate and I met, and then I'll talk about why I care about solitude. So Nate and I met at Cal Poly in San Luis Obispo, um, and I was a freshman. I was 17, and you show up at college, and all of the things that made you special in high school are just obliterated. They're just gone. And you're lost in the sea of people and you're kind of trying to latch on to, to somebody. And in, into my life walks Nate, uh, who, Nate, how old were you at the time? 21, 22? I turned 21 at Cal Poly. So I was actually 20 years old when I probably met you. Yeah. And so you're a little bit older than me. And, uh, for some reason that I could, couldn't quite figure out you and, uh, uh, our friend, mutual friend, Dan Coke, uh, for whatever reason, you and Dan were, would call me to hang out. And I couldn't, I, at first I just thought this is, this is weird. Why are these guys, they're older, they're cooler. They're in this band. Um, they're, why do they want to hang out with me? And then it just sort of dawned on me that you guys were nice. You were being nice. And, and, um, and I really look, um, admire that about you guys. Uh, it wasn't until years later that I asked Dan about it and I was saying, you know, Dan, thanks. You know, that was like a really kind thing that you did uh, when I was a freshman. And he said, oh, that I was worried that everybody was having fun without me. So I would just call people up and <laughs> <laughs> sounds like Dan. I felt like and this is kind of what we were talking about on our last ep- or the episode that's coming out this week is just that friendship at that time in your life. It, it sort of just kind of spills out of everywhere and it just kind of happens. 
everybody's in this stage of life where everyone's willing to be friends and everyone has the time. You know, and Dan was sort of a curator of connections. So he would kind of, you didn't have to do any work with Dan Koch around. It's like he did all the work to get everyone in the room and then you just kind of did speed dating, you know? Yeah. Yeah, but it really it really came from this inability that you know to be alone. Um, so we have to to be texting everyone all the time, ah. you know, get get over. And so there are good things. You know, I don't want to say that um, solitude is always necessarily a good thing. I think that you know, first thing you have to say about it is you want to be careful not not to romanticize it. And I'm thinking a lot more about this because I'm I'm getting married um, pretty soon, uh, about seven months. And I'm thinking, you know, does, you know, does getting married, does this end my brief flirtation with solitude and and monasticism? Uh, Or is this just the beginning of a practice, um, you know, marriage that hopefully will deepen and fulfill my solitude? Um, Do these things have to be sort of uh, either either ors? Um, Back to Merton, you know, Merton says, you know, love does not destroy our solitude. Love is our solitude. What do you think that means? I want to say that there are ways of being solitary together. Right? I think about it this way. If you, if you can be lonely in a crowd, which we all know you can be, um, why can't you yeah. also be solitary in a crowd? Um, or at least if, you know, not a crowd, uh, at least with another person, it just has to be the right person who's attuned to this kind of deeper human connection. Um, and, and this deeper human condition really that, that we are, we are everywhere alone. I think a lot of things for us start as concepts and then they become kind of a deeper reality when we commit to them. So that's kind of what we try to do is introduce people to ideas and concepts that might Mm. be helpful if they want to pursue them. So I was listening to a lot of different people talk about the value of solitude, the value of of mindfulness and uh, being alone and and exploring yourself or tuning your thoughts to your breath, etc., and kind of a, being a, a, an observer of your thoughts and not being, you know, totally entwined with them. So I, Christy and I decided to move to where we are now on the East coast of Canada in a, a small farming community that's, you know, 500 years old, essentially. Mm. And uh, it's just a slow pace of life. And so just to speak to that, like Christy and I are both currently enjoying what we consider just in relative sense solitude <laughs> compared to where our right. life has been. Yeah. There's a wonderful um, passage. This is a very famous passage from uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, um, his letters to a young poet. He says, um, love consists of this two solitudes that meet, protect and greet one another. Hmm. Uh, I, I really like that two solitudes uh, that, that guard and, and greet and protect one another. That's really, hmm. um, what I, mean, I, I remember, um, oh man, we were just over at someone's house uh, a week or two ago, uh, my fiance and I, and someone brought up, um, uh, I don't even know, I'm sure I, I don't want to disparage this company on your lovely podcast and, and get you guys sued, but Constant Contact, I don't even know what this company is. Someone brought up this this company and, and uh, my fiance looks over at me and she says, um, Constant Contact, that sounds like hell (laughs) (laughs) it's just like a mailchimp or like an email server that so you can stay in contact with your customers yeah 
I'm sure they're fine people <laughs> that provide a necessary service to the world. But I just thought, I'm going to marry this woman. Right? She understands. Like, That's awesome. Two solid. A lot of times I think we don't want to be alone because we're so terrified of what we might see in ourselves. And we're, we're terrified of who we mm. are and all the things we've stuffed down and we've buried. And so we constantly keep busy to try to stay away from those things that we don't want to deal with or face. And solitude, obviously, I mean, you could speak more to this, but it helps you to be okay with being with yourself. And that's like a huge step to differentiating from other people. Absolutely. I, w- I would even take it a step further and say, not only is it unhealthy and undesirable to, to totally merge with somebody, I would say it's it's impossible. Mm-hmm. It's sort of this fantasy um, that we have. It, you know, it drives a lot of things. You, you see it um, sort of so often these things, they begin with something that's true. Um, and then it sort of distorts after a while. Uh, the truth is that we need each other and that we are made for each other. We belong to each other. Um, I deeply believe that. But then we, we take it a little bit too far and we start to want to, you know, almost sort of consume constant contact, constant <laughs> contact. Like, let me give you an example. Um, there, there's the whole uh, vulnerability movement right now. Mm-hmm which again, we don't want to disparage. There's so much good stuff that's come out of that. I think especially for older generations, um, not necessarily our generation, but, but people who were taught that vulnerability is weakness. Are you talking about uh, like maybe Brene Brown's work, et cetera? Yeah, great. She would be, be a, um, a representative figure. Right. Um, but there's a lot in that, uh, disappoints people when they, you know, sometimes you're, you're, you're quick intimacy is a false intimacy mm-hmm. and, um, you're very soon uh, uh, left lonelier than you, you started. I can tell you, so just one more quick story um, by a, a, about a mutual friend of, of ours, Nate. Um, I won't embarrass him uh, in public, so we'll just call him uh, Jordan J. Uh, he's our buddy who's a screenwriter uh, in L.A. And writing, we could talk about writing and, and the artistic life and how there's a, a loneliness built into that, inherent in that Um Maybe that's a, a bit of a tangent, but uh, for for now, um, Brene Brown, uh, he was working, he was teaching at a school um, to support his writing habit, and uh, his school decided, you know, we'll go on this retreat with Brene Brown, and she gets up there, and she's so, if you've ever seen her TED Talks, you know, she's so inspiring, and so she's speaking, and it's just like the gospel, and 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 you're you're ready to you know alter call to to go up and and be converted. And, and so she breaks, after she's speaking, she breaks everyone up in, into their separate groups and um, gives them these, these questions and to talk about. And, and our friend uh, Jordan says, you know, I'll go first. And he's hmm. sit he- here with, you know, 12 people from his work. And the questions are, you know, what do you want to change about your life? And Jordan just, just spills it, just floodgates. He's a really sincere and articulate guy, and and he just starts mm. starts talking, and you know I want to change this about my life, and you know I smoke too much and I drink too much and I'm lonely in this way, and I, and he just here it goes, and then he sits down, the next person's turn, and the next person gives you know the most pat canned platitudinous answer you've ever heard of like oh I just work too hard and I need to the Michael Scott answer. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's like when they ask you in an interview, like, what's your major flaw? It's just, oh, it's just that I work too hard, you know? Yeah. I get too much yeah. done. I care too much. <laughs> I, I once in an interview asked somebody what, what her uh, biggest weakness was, and she replied, chocolate. 
<laughs> She's honest. Nothing will make you a, a, a sexist faster, right? <laughs> it's funny, Paul, because it's like you've been listening in on our last couple episodes because all these themes are eerily connecting. Oh, good. But I would say that one of my biggest flaws is being attracted to people who are like that instantly, just hard on their sleeve people. But what I found in the in the long run they can be really unsustainable in terms of friendship. Yeah. And my wife was telling me, like, you know, in the long run, you seem to have clung on to friendships with people who are different than you, who aren't emotionally, like, just, you know, oozing out on their sleeve. And I go, man, that's so interesting. Because I'm attracted to people who can do what Jordan just did. Just like, here it is, blah, right? Yeah. I was going to ask before we started what the boundaries were, but... There is no boundaries. I, I like to say there is no boundaries, and, and I, I, I'm I'm all about forthrightness and, and openness. And I think that's yeah. why people listen yeah. to podcasts is because it's not it's not the pat answers; it's the real personality and the real. Person, yeah, we try so. to we try we try to do that thing for this show. We try to tap into the honesty of that Jordan is trying to tap into, and so often it just doesn't happen. My my question yeah. with Jordan is is you know why do we need that? Why why is the vulner- with any you know, um, idea that seems to catch fire. It's always good to sort of ask, well, what need is this filling? And, um, vulnerability, uh, um, wow, it's, it's such a wonderful thing and sort of necessary counterbalance. Um, when I step back and ask myself, you know, do we live in a culture of under sharing, uh, these days, or do we live in a culture of, of oversharing and why, why do we overshare and why do we, um, um, reach uh, for vulnerability as as almost a, a tool for binding others to ourselves. You know, if I share something really intimate with you, then um, you need to reciprocate, and and it's almost a way of of, of coercion. Yeah, or uh, fusing, or or manipulating someone into a deeper connection. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure if I'm seeking authenticity or if I'm just seeking seek, seeking intensity. You know what I mean? Like, I just need people to be intense in order to feel like it's real. Like, I hate small talk, so I have to get somewhere. Right. But then people, I, I feel like when people hang up the phone, they're like telling their spouse or whatever, man, just had a whirlwind with Nate. He just dropped his whole motions on me for an hour. Whew, I need to go and get some solitude. <laughs> well, I, I feel like, yes, our culture overshares and, you know, we, we, we have a standard of behaving, especially in the West or in, in, in America. That is like, don't let your guard down, be, you know, be productive, be successful, project, project. Um, and, and there's, there seems to be at least what, what people are, are glomming on to this movement of vulnerability. There seems to be a need for uh, people to be real and, and accept people as they yeah. really are. Yeah. And I worry with, with, um, the more projection that comes out there, I, I worry about people's, um, bullshit meters today. Yeah. Uh, not, not being quite attuned to, to the real, um, well, mine's on I hyper mean, alert. <laughs> yeah. And that's, and that's what I would, why, you know, I love talking to you, Nate, is that there's to me, um, the difference, Matt, that you're talking about in terms of motive, um, Nate, whenever I hear you speak, you're always sort of bringing something out of, um, you know, your deep inwardness and, and offering it to someone else, not necessarily, uh, um, 
to get affirmed in it, but so that that they will uh, understand their own depths and their own inwardness. Um, And so the fruit of your like emo Nate Nate oversharing nature is, is, and the motives behind it are clearly, you know, a kind of um, inwardness and and connection that develops in others. But um, yeah, no, on, on, on the bullshit meter topic, I think we should talk about this. Um, I think this is one of the things that, you know, people talk about solitude as potentially self-indulgent, what are the gifts of solitude? Um, solitude teaches you to hear what's genuine in the world by first huh. making you aware of all that is not genuine in yourself. I just, you know, people fall for way more things um, because we want our lives to be real and we want them to mean something and our lives don't feel very real because reality has been taken over by television. And if our life doesn't look like television, then it doesn't seem real. Uh, and we live in this sort of like post-truth meaning vacuum where people are looking to attach themselves to causes bigger than themselves that are kind of validated, um, uh, in the news cycle, uh, or in celebrity media. So it's weird, you know, this is what do ISIS and Hanson have in common, right? You get, you're looking to, to, to be a super fan of, of this, this band and, and get them tattooed on you. I'm trying to pull in your, yeah. your experiences <laughs> on touring. relevant. Or, you know, yeah. Because, and I, I'll tie this back to solitude, because people aren't aware of who they are, what they actually think, what their authentic selves are, we're, we're living in a culture of just constant distraction. We fall victim to to emotional manipulation because we're not thinking we're not aware we're not differentiated well it's so much easier today i feel like to do it you know i mean i i'm just sitting here talking to you guys and i'm I'm imagining if like i could get in a time machine and go back and sit on a curb next to plato and socrates and listen to them talk for hours (laughs) you'd have to learn latin (laughs) greek my bad my bad that's that's built into the time machine, Matt. Duh. <laughs> We've evolved to the Kardashians where... <laughs> I can't even say anything about it. It's just so bad. I, I would say we, we actually do have that. I mean, the they're, it's just lost amid the noise. Uh, Is it just in academia or what? No, there's so much noise in academia too. You know, no thought left unpublished is the... the um, the slogan of the university. Um, but you know, so here's an example, uh, um, Walker Percy, uh, uh, mid mid century Catholic novelist, um, has this great parable. He says something, you know, I'll probably sort of butcher it here, but, um, he says the kingdom of God is like a man who has gone into the desert seeking the truth about things. And he's gone into solitude and he's learned the truth of things. Uh, but then when he comes back to the city to tell others, he re- realizes that the truth uh, with a capital T is written a- across every billboard and it's plastered on bumper stickers and it's, you know, um, on sale at uh, Best Buy and there's commercials for it. And so as he's trying to tell people the truth, he may as well be shouting Exxon, Exxon or, or you know, T-Mobile or whatever brand names are there. It's not yeah. that the truth is not here. And it's not that people aren't talking about it. I mean, the truth is all around us, available, literally streaming at us at the speed of light through our senses all the time. Um, it's just that we have lost, you know, the ears to hear it because there's so much noise, and we've lost touch with Matt. What you're talking about with our, with ourselves as beings 
who have identities because solitude, you know, belongs to the essence of, of personality. And if you don't have solitude, then you, then you lose your, your personality and you become, you know, susceptible to this, um, you know, uh, globalization of superficiality as a as Jesuit. I really love Adolfo Nicolas, uh, calls it. Um, so yeah, Nate, I, I, I don't, I don't think that there's no more, it would be wrong to say like there's, there's Socrates doesn't exist anymore. He's out there. He's just not popular talking. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> not as popular as the Kardashians. Hey, Paul, I would love to get yeah. uh, uh, you can it can be as brief or as long as you want. But I'm really interested in hearing your story of um, of kind of you're your entering into a practice of solitude and whatever that looked like. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say there are two aspects of it. Um one is uh, through a group of monks out here in Big Sur um, on the central coast of California. And, and the other uh, would be um, through poetry. Um, poetry is somewhat paradoxical because it's speech that also sort of includes silence in it mm-hmm. as its precondition. Um, so it's this, this contradiction. Um, the poetry, I, I, I would say, bears the imprint of solitude um, and it's one of the places we encounter it. Um, maybe let me talk about the monks first, yeah. and, and then maybe I'll, I'll read you a couple of poems or something. Um, the monks uh, in Big Sur, um, you know, what they would say if you asked them, they're, they're, monasticism is, is, uh, exists on a continuum, and maybe imagine on one end of the continuum, um, like a really strong communal ethos where the monks are sharing everything, doing everything together. Um, that would be the, the Cenobitic tradition. Um, on the other end of the continuum, you've got hermits, hmm. right? Real solitaries who are out there in the desert doing, um, um, doing what one does. And, uh, the monks, uh, in Big Sur tend to, to, drift a little bit more toward their hermits, um, technically, um, they're hermits who are also Benedictines. So they, they, you know, they'll eat one meal together a day. They gather together five times a day to, to pray, um, the hours. And, um, I think they would, if you ask them, I think what they would say is that, look, some of us have that need to be alone, um, in us a a little bit more than others, but everybody's got it. Right. Um, not to get like too Jungian uh, about this stuff, but um, think of, of Jung's uh, archetypes of the collective unconscious. Yeah. There's, you know, the warrior and the lover and the trickster. And there's the monk. Um, there's the solitary. And uh, the monks maybe just sort of have a little bit, you know, people who are actually monks have more of that uh, in them. But we all have it. Right. So their their monasticism the deeper they enter into their solitude, it's not something that separates them from the world, but it's something that connects them to the world, uh, connects them to, to what we all have inside us. And they sort of hold open this space where the rest of us can go to the monastery and encounter silence and solitude and thereby, you know, expand our humanity um, in, in, into a fuller way. I would say that, if I'm the average person listening to this, the, the biggest argument I've always heard is monks are kind of they're they're always looked at as selfish by evangelicals, um, yeah. and that's not what we're we're called to be in the world, not to seclude ourselves. And we did an episode on Thomas Merton actually early in this podcast on the rain and the rhinoceros. Oh, I'm all over it. 
Have you read that little? Uh, yeah, it's been a while. I'd love to go listen to you talk about it. Yeah, but I mean, one thing I took away from that episode is that Thomas was trying to to suggest that there are, it's good for humanity to know that there are people in the woods that are alone. Yeah, it's not a bad thing. It's good for people to remind themselves that they can too go there. They can too calm themselves down and their thoughts and wander off and be okay. And I think that's that's exactly what reminded me of when you just said that some of the monks will tell you, you know, like we provided this space, this space for average people just to come and be alone because some people's lives get so they just get so unhealthy. The only thing they can do is get in their car and drive to the hills of Big Sur, sit on that cliff, look at the ocean, and have a monk walk by that's in peace. That's in peace. You know? Like, somebody's somebody's living in peace. Damn it. I can too. Right? <laughs> well, and, and it's not it's not like monks are, are trying to convert everybody to their way of life is what I'm getting from you. I'm, I'm, you're, you're, they, they are an example that that is... Um, something that everybody, a fully integrated person, can can mm. add that to some extent to their to their life to become integrated and actualized. What if you want to use psychological? Yeah, terms. totally. Um, and to to get at what you guys were saying before about um, living into some of these truths, there's so much. I feel a little bit guilty about adding to the the rhetoric and the cant around. Oh, we can just talk about solitude, talk about silence, all we want. And it, there are these ideals, and and I understand that it's healthy sometimes to be skeptical and mistrustful of ideals. But you meet some of these monks, and this is not an ideal. I mean, this is a reality. These these people are in tune with the ground of being um, in a way that that I am not, and that is that is palpable um, to the senses. Uh, and they've lived because because they've lived into this reality essentially that I just you know I'm a teacher. I just talk about it. Um, but as much as possible, you know, uh, I, I try to, to escape, um, uh, I can, maybe let's talk wait, real quick wait, about, I, about just, I want to throw one more thing back in about the monks sure. that I thought was interesting. So our buddy, Josh, who recommended you come on this podcast, wrote, uh, an article about visiting a monastery. Um, and you wrote an article about visiting the monastery, right? The, yeah. yeah. Mount Athos. Yeah. yeah. The oldest monastery in the world, right? Yeah, this is the birthplace of, of Western monasticism. Well, maybe not the birthplace, the, but um, yeah. But I haven't read this article in like two years, and the one thing that stuck with me about that article, and we could talk about this, is that there's, and I don't know if anyone knows this, but the way he described it, and I didn't know this, there was a difference between the hermits and the monks. So the hermits live kind of outside of the monastery, out in the woods, and they kind of can come and go, but they mostly, they can be alone sometimes for two months on end. Um and sometimes you have to talk about if you a live silent in, retreat. Yeah. And the monks in the monastery will hike to these hermits sometimes and bring them, bring them food, check on them. And sometimes they're even so isolated. They live in cliffs, like in the bottom of cliffs overhanging the ocean. Yeah. And, and he described, and this is what I want to talk about. Sorry. It's taking me a while to set up what I want to talk about, but he was saying that the monks, the hermits in the woods think that they need that they're too they're too much separatists. They need to go back to the monastery, and and the the monks think that they're too in the crowd, and they need to go out into the woods. And the devil continues to torment both of them with the <laughs> right. 
<laughs> just being Endlessly. envious of each other's religiosity. Yes. Yeah. And the way he and the way he wrote it was so much better. But I remember thinking, my God, even the monks and the hermits are battling each other over who's living the better spiritual life. So, so can we talk about that? Like, even the monks are persecuted internally with the hermits. And totally, um, I I would butcher it to. I mean, it's such a brilliant piece. You should just link to it in the the show notes. Um, okay, I will. Our friend Josh wrote. Um, and and his burden in that piece is really to explain monasticism to the skeptic and to the skeptical evangelical who says these selfish monks out there. And, and so that's his audience. Um, so if that's you, you know, that that's this would be a good piece to read. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's that uh, it's an idea from the Desert Fathers that the 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 devil says to the, the monk who lives in community, you need to go into solitude. And then the monk who lives in solitude, the devil says, you need to get out of here into community. Um, Merton, in his his chapter on solitude, um, he says, and I, I've always really clung clung to this, really. Um, he says that, uh, that, you know, the soul that has thus found itself naturally gra- gravitates toward the desert but does not object to remaining in the city, for it knows that it is everywhere alone. Hmm. Honey, it's alright. Honey, it's alright. It's alright to be alone. It's alright, honey, it's alright It's alright to be alone Despite all our shuffling And I think once you understand your essential aloneness, um, that solitude is not, I mean, we've been talking about it as this thing that we seek and this thing we have to go looking for. um, But actually, if you just stop, you will realize that solitude is the natural sort of deep ontology of your being. It's the sort of natural existential state Mm -hmm. that, that we're in. It's not something that you have to seek so much as you have to stop seeking other things and you realize that you are already everywhere alone. If you're that person, you gravitate towards certain things. You gravitate toward physical solitude, you know, into the desert and to maybe gardens and to families and intimate relationships. You can't oh, gravitate oh, oh. towards good things. Yeah. I can explain this to the lower the lower brain folks like myself. You're describing you're describing Batman. Oh, um this is Batman to me. Like Batman is in the city, but he's a very sort of tortured soul that lives alone a lot. Is out at night, he's by himself, right? Like I read that's a Batman, Batman graphic novel when I was a kid, and I was like, "How does Batman stay awake all night fighting crime?" And it was because he meditated for three hours, and it was better than a, a full night of sleep. So he would sit cross-legged, fully, fully yeah. mindful in a meditative state, yeah. and get his, his full Two rest. Points. Two points. Number one, Batman's a scientist, so he can, you know. Is he? I thought he was just a rich mogul. No, no, he's a scientist. He's got gadgets. And uh, I guess he's smart. And number two, he has ninja training of some kind, um, which I assume includes like Navy SEAL levels of sleep deprivation. And speaking of (laughs) speaking of the the hero's journey here, because if you look at every every superhero they they follow the same trajectory 
of sure. um, of maybe even like a Homer's Odyssey. Uh, if you're if we're talking archetypes here, and and when you talk about Jungian archetypes, you know there one of them is the monk, but all of them must integrate with each other in some way. And so even in mm-hmm. every hero's journey, journey, if you uh, if you look at it, there's always there's always the the push to move and the call out into the wilderness when they actually have to go it alone and they have to figure things out, and then right. and then when they when they learn who they are, I mean, I'm just thinking mm-hmm. I'm watching Moana with my kids often because they love it. <laughs> and it's just all yeah. about this self discover, this discovery of yourself um, yes. by going out alone and, and, um, and facing your, your, really yourself without the distractions and then, and then finding who you are and then coming home and bringing that gift to the community. And that's, right. that's the archetype, right? Absolutely. But like even the hero, yeah. even the warrior, has to do that to be integrated. Yes. And the, br- the brilliant thing about Campbell and all that stuff is that going out on your hero's journey, um, you realize is really a form of going in and that the quest that you mm-hmm. um, accomplish and the prize that, sh- that you win are things that, that um, um, are, you find that they- they're in you and that's what I see sort of lacking uh, in, you know, in our culture, we, we have so many people who are seeking outside of themselves what they should be first seeking within themselves. Um, and this is why, you know, I mean, lonely people are always trying to rearrange the world so that it fits their needs. Mm-hmm. And they're always making a mess, a mess of it, right? This is why, what do all the last, you know, 15,000 mass shooters um, in history have in common? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, they, they all are upset that the world is does not answer to their their needs. Um, but first you need to be still, right? Uh, how can you respect someone else's solitude unless you've entered your own solitude? And unless we do that, we're just going to keep making a mess of, of the world. You make such a good point here with with pointing pointing to external forces to fill our needs and and you know, fix our problems as opposed to the internal forces. And I think we're in a culture right now that is full of these culture wars of group identity versus group identity. Are you a victim? Are you an oppressor? What group do you belong to? And there's all this finger pointing to, um, to these groups that have traditionally been in power. And if you're part of that group, you're part of the problem. And um, everything seems to be and there, there is some validity to recognizing, you know, your privilege, etc. But everything seems to be pointed at external issues, and there seems to be a, a real lack of individual uh, responsibility. And in what Nate and I have been talking about on the last few podcasts, just the primacy of individual consciousness—that you are an individual, mm-hmm. you are not whatever inter- intersectional group someone throws you into. And mm-hmm. you are responsible for yourself, um, which I think is even me saying that or, or saying that I think there's some validity in that I could be attacked as X, Y, Z, because I could be part of the external force who wants to oppress. people. Sure. I think it's really, really yeah. easy to, to dismiss and be skeptical of, of solitude as, as a privilege. Um, and I, you know, I think it's, the, the thing that I lo- like about a lot of these critiques is that it does, you know, 
obviously things can go too far, but it does make you aware of, of the extent to which, um, um, you know, we, we are, we are privileged, but solitude, I think transcends this in a way because what it teaches you, um, is that merely being is a blessing, right? That mere existence is a kind of good, um, kind of hermeneutics of suspicion. The, um, sorry, this is trying to translate some of these philosophical terms. Um, the, the, critique of the critiques of privilege out there. Um, I think are, it's really important that we, we listen to them. Um, but they are not the, the end. They're not the, the, um, they're not the path to full equality and, and, and self-actualization. <laughs> we were talking about this the other day, like, like, you know, there's this viral video going around of this coach and there's like a whole group of kids and Matt and I were kind of ranting about it on the podcast. And I got into this Facebook debate about it where, the coach goes, all right, anyone whose parents are still together to take a step forward, right? And then a bunch of kids step forward. And then he asks similar questions like that. At the end, he's like, all right, turn around. And half half the kids are like still at the starting line. And and people are people are like raging against this video as a, as sort of privilege propaganda. And I would say this helps us all to go inward. It helps the people on the starting line to go inward and say, some of this stuff isn't my fault. I was born without two parents. That's not my fault. And then the the kids who have moved down the line can say, "Man, it isn't their fault." And and look at me. I have two parents still, and and I did nothing to do it. To, to and yeah. I should be more grateful of that fact. And but we we sort of you know do the dichotomy thing where we say, "No, that's they're you know they're just going to have a victim mentality." And the other one's like, "Oh, they're just making them feel guilty because they're." They're upper middle class. It's just all you know? group external warfare, yeah, as opposed to individual awareness. But what I want, and what I think is the problem, Paul, and this we could talk about this, is I think it's because a lot of evangelicals, especially Western evangelicals, have spent little to no time talking about the days in the desert. When I grew up, it was like, oh yeah, Jesus does all these great things and tells us all these things we should and shouldn't do. But that part when he goes off into the desert for like 30 days or 40 days and gets all weird, we don't really want to talk about that, you know, <laughs> because we don't because it doesn't fit into our sort of our agenda. And and as a church trying to raise money and build its own little empire to continue, continue the existence, it for sure as hell can't go off and wander in the desert for 40 days. Um, yeah. Can't have a sabbatical. Yeah. yeah, I was I was wondering how how Christiany your your podcast. You oh, know, we, we is, it, is it okay to get a little Christian? Well, we were both raised with a lot of fundamental stuff, so we talk about it a lot because it's just part of our stories. And I have yeah. to talk about it because I I you know can't um, uh, conceive of the point of of solitude without you know um, God at the heart of that. Um, which we should should talk about at some point. Um, one, just one more thought. Like, um, I, I guess I'm really hesitant to like speak. I can say I obviously have um, a view about this about solitude and privilege. I'm a little bit hesitant to to throw it out there. Um, what I would like to do is maybe sort of invoke another writer um, uh, who, you know, so I'm not saying these words. This is uh, from from uh, Richard Rodriguez who's, you know, a brown-skinned man. He's a first-generation uh, Hispanic immigrant. Um, he's a really wonderful writer, uh, essayist, um, yeah, deeply Catholic. Um, he, he lives in San Francisco, 
Um, he's uh, sometimes people talk about him and they say, you know, oh, you know, Richard Rodriguez. He's he's you know he's a gay writer and uh, he's, he he's a gay man. And he's, his response to that is really funny. He says, no, I'm actually kind of a, a morose writer. <laughs> he's reclaiming the the term. Yeah, Uh, but Rodriguez, he's what I'm trying to emphasize is that he is not speaking from a position of institutional power and and privilege and whiteness um, and straightness the way I am. Um, Rodriguez. So so I'm invoking him in that that context. Um, He has this really interesting account of being in church as a kid uh, with his parents who were laboring in the fields, and I use that word, I emphasize it because I, I don't know what that word means the way that these people do um, to labor. And um, somehow, you know, you'd think they'd want to sleep in on Sundays, but somehow, you know, his mom would get the family up and they would, she, she would get him to mass every Sunday. And he would sit there and watch his parents at church. And it was the one hour of the week where somebody, and you could say like, oh, the, the church is like, you know, taking up their leisure time, you know, and, and is filling it with these fantasies and myths. And what these people really need to be doing is resting and getting paid a living wage. The church, though, was the, for him the one hour a week where their um, inwardness and their interior lives were validated and spoken to and treated huh. as if their thoughts about salvation and eternal things really mattered. Um, so it was this immensely dignifying thing to have these farm workers who have no privilege and no power, um, you know, sitting there in church. You, you could say, like, well, externally they're sitting there getting, you know, uh, talked at by some priest. Um, but I think that maybe a better way of seeing it is is solitude um, uh, can open up these these dimensions of the human that we all have in common that transcend identity politics, that transcend um, uh, uh, whatever sort of divisive cultural things are out there. And, and I don't uh, mean divisive in, in a, um, always negative sense. There's yeah. some, some distinctions and some dividing need, needs to be done. I was going to ask you, Paul, have you seen the last days in the desert with Ewan McGregor? No. What, what is that? It's like a, it's a, it's sort of a, almost like a silent film of Jesus wandering in the wilderness. And of course, Christians didn't give it a good review, but it's funny because the film itself is trying to put your put you in this sort of solitude place. So he's walking around, he finds this family. But what I love is that at nighttime or whenever, when he starts to get tempted by the devil, right? The devil doesn't come to him in the way that every single Christian uh, story that I've ever been told described. The devil comes as himself. So it, he plays Jesus. So a version of Jesus comes to him and says things to him that sound like truth. Hmm. So first off, you don't have you don't have a guy with horns and a pitchfork and he's not and he's not speaking to you in obvious delusions where it's like a version of himself and the way that he's quote unquote being tempted sounds so close to the truth at times that you're like this is the battle to go inward because when you go into yourself you have these two voices chit-chatting back and forth. You have this devil and angel on the shoulders. But they're not caricatures. They're both you. <laughs> but they are both you. And you don't know which one to listen to. And it's very, very difficult. And I think that's why people don't even want to go down. 
because those voices start to chatter and they can't tell which one makes more sense or which one is them i mean who who am i is the is the big scary yeah. question but it's a it's just a great film because it just portrays the devil in such a relatable way that i think all people should see even if they don't like think the movie's good i think it's uncomfortable in a wonderful way that you can kind of see that like yeah jesus had to kind of be a human being and listen to the chatter and listen to his a version of himself try to talk himself in and out of stuff that he couldn't quite figure out and um i just remember being laying there going wow like i feel like i just wandered through the desert you know, I got to watch that film. You know, I always love those films where like not like, quote unquote, not Christian directors do like a Christian story. And I love the I love the filter that they bring to the stories. Usually fresh. Yeah. Yeah. No, Noah to me is a film that fits that category. Yeah, I love that one. Yeah. Um, and we could I mean, we, we could talk about um, the connection between art and solitude, how art can sort of put you in touch with it because Nate, it sounds like what this film did for you is well, always there, there is a kind of solitary experience going to see a movie, right? I, I used to actually go alone to the movies a lot, but that's just cause I'm dark and weird. But Batman. even if you're together, yeah. You know, even if you go with somebody, um, uh, there's a sense of being spoken to and being addressed as a person who, who, at bottom, you know, as Matt, you were saying, is responsible for, for his own or her own existence. And art reminds you of that. It, it addresses you in, in that way. Uh, well, and, the, and, and it helps, yeah. And the creation of art. I mean, I can, you know, if I'm distracted all day long, there's no way I can write songs. Those things only pop into my head when it's quiet at night and there's no distractions right. and it's just me by myself. You right. know? And that's when, that's when the creative abyss is present and you have hmm. to engage yeah. with it right there has to be some space uh for you know in order for that to be filled yeah um, hmm. it's it's interesting though i mean i kind of this maybe this is a little deeper than you guys want to go but um in a, in a way i tell me if you want to change the hey hey do you know who you're talking to Can't <laughs> <go deep> enough. <laughs> there's no bottom yeah, there's no bottom to this emo heart, my friend. <laughs> it's true. It's true. You you were in a an emo, defining emo band of my childhood. I used to sit in the tree as a kid with with a black with black shirt and black pants and pretend I was Batman. <laughs> true story. At night, I would go out at night and try to like catch people breaking into cars or whatever, thinking that I was <laughs> That's what I did as a kid. So I'm pretty damn emo, Paul. So let's, let's uh, go low. All right, so this is really why what attracts me to solitude, I think, is that I take it kind of as self-evident that, you know, as much as it's, it, you know, making is really wonderful, creating is really wonderful, um, ultimately the point of our lives is not to do things. Um, and the reason that I, I am calling that self-evident, though maybe it's not you know, if it were, if, if the point of our lives were to do things, why do none of the things we do last? You know, wh what what can we really accomplish that's not utterly transitory? Um, you know, you guys started a band for like really good reasons because you had favorite bands that you looked up to and they brought you a lot of happiness. 
um, and made life a little bit better, helped you feel less lonely, less alone. Um, and then you wanted to go be someone's favorite band. So you did this, but you know, here we are several news cycles later and it's hard to, you know, you have to keep reminding people that, that this thing that you worked so hard for for years, uh, still exists. Um, it's kind of like, you know, what have you done for me lately? Um, and from an egocentric centric viewpoint, this does sound a bit despairing, right? Because we love these things dearly. Um, we become attached to them, and we want them to last, and they don't. Mm. Um, but all the world's wisdom traditions seem to point to this, right? That if the point of your life was just to do things and what you could do, then that would uh, entail one type of life. But what if it's not? What if there's something... What if solitude teaches you that that being and not doing is really sort of the blessing? What, what if any condition in which you are feel your being as a blessing is true solitude? Now that can happen obviously with somebody else, um, or it can happen uh, uh, totally alone. Um, I don't know. I just I think the point of the world is to savor the world, uh, you know, the good and the bad. I mean, we've got these senses, right? We've got uh, all this input coming into us. Um, it would sort of be a crime um, not to to enjoy this. And I, I don't mean enjoy it as kind of like an end in itself in some kind of like Epicurean or hedonistic way, but, you know, savoring it in the sense of affirm, you know, experiencing its, its goodness so that we can be in, in right relation to it. Well, and being aware of the transitory nature of not only what we're doing, but life itself like death is the one thing that's guaranteed to happen to every single human being yet we spend zero time considering that we will die and what does and, and what it might teach us about how to live This is what wandering in the desert does. You know what I mean? Like this is why that's that part is so important. Um, and it's something that's so hard for us to do. Uh, I mean, I, I, I totally agree. You know, you think about guys that now this generation, the ultimate goal is to go to Silicon Valley, get a group of people, create an app and make millions of dollars. And people are obsessed about it. And, that's the that is like those are the guys the, that are trying to live forever too. <laughs> yeah, 
that's just a quintessential <laughs> stereotype of like people who have one track minds. And I think a lot of people are in the cities are doing that now. Every every young group of men want to create something that everyone's going to use on this stupid phone that we have. And that's life. That's ultimately what life is to a majority of people. And, you know, Matt spent the, this year on a farm. Last year I was on a farm. And we sort of went through life in reverse where we got thrown into the app development world, so to speak, as young kids and bands, mm -hmm. and then sort of got spit out. And then we're like, you know, what the hell now? We've like, we've yeah. we've been human doing so long. How do we be human beings? How do, how do we not right. be this projected version of ourselves that achieves X Y Z? You see a difference between solitude and when other when people use words like stillness or silence is there something distinct about solitude or is it kind of encompass all yeah this? yeah to start i mean i think there's like there's an eastern concept to that we can invoke that might help us out here i hate to be the guy who's who's like talking about Taoist philosophy who's clearly like the whitest dude ever you but it's it's just transcendent i got the Tao Te Ching on my phone i'm good <laughs> oh yeah, it's it's such good stuff, and that that whole text is is all about the strength that comes with from from consenting to things rather than forcing things, yeah. um, and you know the the practice of of active passivity or or, or not doing. Sometimes it takes a lot of. Uh, energy and strength to to consent to stillness. What was yours? Consent to stillness. Yeah, it was consent to stillness. Yeah, right. Because um, it's easier to to move, mm -hmm. um, and even con consenting uh, uh, sounds like you're. It sounds like a not doing. Um, but again, the paradox of all this is is uh, uh, that sometimes not doing is is uh, an effort. Um, it was a huge effort just moving here. I had to commit every day. Today I'm going to do nothing. And it felt like apostasy. Yeah. Every day felt like apostasy. But I was like, oh I my have gosh. to do this. <laughs> the, uh, man, the, uh, when I first showed up at the, the hermitage, the monastery, I was, you know, you show up somewhere new and you're really interested in proving yourself, whether it's a new job or, you know, you're starting out a new relationship and you're trying to prove yourself. I show up uh, with these monks and they've through sort of uh, through a friend of a friend, they've agreed to let me crash in one of their, they have a lot of empty cells mm -hmm. because monasticism is dying and the guys are getting older. And Aww. so anyway, I, I said, Hey, I'll help out around, around the place. If you can, if you'll just let me give me a cot. And so they said, yes. And so the first day I'm out, I'm washing windows. I'm doing all this stuff. One of the, um, the hmm. monks walks by and says, uh, Hey, how long have you been at this? And I said, I don't know, maybe two or three hours. I'm in graduate school at the time. It's the summer. So I'm used to working like 12 hour days and I'm just getting started. I'm just getting warmed up. And he grabs the bucket away from me. And he's like, that's enough. You've, you've done enough for today. Why don't you just go not do something for a while? Why don't you, and he, I'll never forget this. He told me to go waste some time. You know and that's funny? so hard, especially if you're a doer. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I mean that's, and I think about being a child, and like I was the kid that would just wander off for hours. Um, there's so much beauty in wasting time that doesn't happen these days because we're so plugged in, and it sucks to come back to technology again. But it's like, 
it's like yeah you have to sort of like have like a a surge and all the power goes out and then people start wandering outside and wandering around and looking at trees it's like <laughs> you know what i mean it's like when the grinch comes and steals everyone's toys and they just have to like figure out how to live live life in uh <laughs> we need our we need sort of like our our our, our metaphorical monk grinch to come down and take <laughs> away all this shit so that we can like come outside and go now what do we do with ourselves <laughs> But I, when I was talking to Josh about this, one of the one of the most amazing things that I thought I took away from just you know him talking about it, it's like when you go to apply to become a monk or whatever, and I'm just using words I don't know. I don't know what the official words are. They do like a three year internship. Yeah, and there's a long trial period. Yeah, and at the end of the internship, the way he described it, I thought it was so great. The monks don't say you don't fit in here. The monks will say, if it doesn't work out, the way that Josh described it was that your soul is restless here. This isn't good for you as a person, as, a, as opposed to you aren't good for us and our little clique. Mm-hmm. It's like everyone is welcome. How is your soul doing in this soup? Is it swimming or is it freaking <laughs> sinking? Right. I mean, a really scary thought would be to magnify that even more and say, you know, would my soul be happy in in the presence of god um or would it be uh uh terrified and and um shriveled and yeah but think about how like applying but think about how the way you get fired from a church these days it's nothing like that it's not like it's more like oh you don't fit into our system you're fired you know here's your severance good luck and then that person walks away and I I would venture to guess that most people who get fired from a church are like, "F it, I don't want to be in. The, I don't want to be. I don't have anything to do with with church or Christianity ever again." Yeah, right. I'm sure that I depends mean, on the church and the leadership. But. but I'm just saying, I have lots of friends who've been fired from church, and that's but so they, much different. They, they often, yes, they often do mimic business because business is so successful in America, and you want to grow your church, you want to act like. You got a good marketing team and you're hiring all the, sure. the cool professionals and getting stuff done. And, and, uh, so yeah, I mean, it's not about soul building. It's about empire building. Well, it's about, it's about this church is full of Enneagram twos and this church is full of Enneagram fives <laughs> and this church is full of Enneagram sevens. And it's just like, you know, all we're doing is sort of segregating ourselves. Whereas the monks are like, come into this and see how your soul does. Because because their souls their souls seem to be able to handle the differences where our churches can't. Anyone who comes in that sort of, uh, I've seen guys get fired because they're single and fifty two, and everyone's like, "Well, you're that, that guy's probably gay. He doesn't fit in here. He he might be a homosexual, and that is against the Lord." Whereas if you're in the in the monk world, it's like that it doesn't none of, none of your uh, things that you struggle with seem to bother the other monks, right? right? Let me try to sort of bring bring this these threads together. Um, I don't know. This is this might be kind of a weird idea at first, but bear with me. What if we think about monasticism, at, you know, and solitude as technologies uh, for experiencing the soul, for um, knowing the self? Um, I know we we tend to disparage uh, technology, uh, but um, think of a technology. You know, as what if we define technology like this? A technology is anything that allows me to experience more of some things and less of other things, right? So, my car 
it allows me to experience a lot more of my, you know, family who lives in the Bay Area um, by helping me experience a lot less of the road between here and San Jose. Um, so it's not that the car is necessary. It's not like, are, is this a good thing or a bad thing? You just have to ask, well, what am I trying to do? I'm trying to experience, of course, the car is what took me away from my family in San Jose in the first place. We could talk about that. But am I trying to experience more of the road or am I trying to experience more of my family? With solids, with any technology, you have to ask, what does it help you experience more of? With monasticism, it's really helping you experience less of, um, you know, a whole lot of other stimuli, stimuli and inputs so that you can experience more of the self. So it's not that monasticism is anti-technology. It's, just, it's that it is a technology. It's a technology that's geared toward us living more as humans. Um, you know, when, I love Wendell Berry. I know you do too, Nate. Um, Barry says, you know, maybe the next great divide among people is not going to be, you know, liberal or conservative. It's going to be between those who wish to live as machines and those who wish to live as creatures. And in a way, you know, monasticism, poetry, solitude, these are all technologies that allow us to experience uh, ourselves as, as creatures, as needy, as dependent, as maybe a little rotten. Um, but that's the experience that... that well, and, and there's a lot of people that are trying to update this, the language for the technology. And there's people who are, you know, agnostics and atheists who actually don't use any of the religious terminology, or if they use it, they use it in a strictly non-religious way. And they experience or claim to experience the same benefits from this mindfulness practice. Or, you know, if you go on a meditation retreat or, a, you know, you, you take a vow of silence for three weeks or whatever, um, people are writing about this and saying, Listen, those old traditions, you know, the the magical thinking aside, there's something deeply true about the effect and science is coming alongside to partner with with obviously this idea because you they do studies and they're like, "Wow, this really reduces anxiety and this helps a person achieve XYZ or, you know, at least in a sense of, you know, self-consciousness yeah. or whatever. So those are always good points of connection when, when the wisdom of 3000 years ago agrees with the wisdom of, of today, we should definitely be paying attention to that mm -hmm. stuff. How much of it do you think like when it comes to solitude, you know, you use the term monasticism, is that a broadly definable term or are you thinking just specifically within the Christian religion? Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things the, the big sir monks talk a lot about is, um, you know, imagine here's sort of a spatial metaphor. Um, imagine that, that there's a ground of being that we've all sort of drifted away from in various ways. Um, the monk is someone who's trying to get back to that ground of being. So a monk in the Christian tradition may actually end up having a lot more in common with, uh, a monk in a, you know, Buddhist or, or, um, Hindu tradition, uh, and then he does any, with an any sort of contemplative Western Christian, right? precisely. Yeah. yeah. Um, so all, all that to say, uh, yeah, a monasticism obviously transcends uh, Christianity. Um, uh, there are so many different forms of it, uh, and there's forms you know that aren't religious at all. Um, 
I love, but I do think that that it, there's things that I think being alone puts you in touch with who you are. And there's an old argument in the Christian tradition that this is, in fact, um, where you meet God, where you find God. Um, there's, I love this line. These, these are from um, uh, this poet, Patrick Kavanaugh. He says, God cannot catch us unless we stay in the unconscious room of our hearts. And we we want to leave that room, right? We, we just get out of there all the hmm. time because we hate being in the unconscious room of our hearts because it's uncomfortable what we find there. Yeah. Um, but God won't, won't catch you, right? Uh, not to say God won't, um, but it seems a lot harder. In the, at least in the Western tradition, which is the only one I can really speak to um, coherently, uh, the, you know, there's two, there's so many different paths to God. Um, you know, there's like, um, the cause, but the, the, probably the main two are the cosmological path and the ontological path. So the cosmological path would be like the outward path where, um, cosmos just meaning, you know, the universe, things, the world, um, where you sort of encounter God, uh, uh, in the, the, the beauty and, and order of, of creation, um, the one that solitude speaks to a little bit more is, is the ontological path. The ontological path is, is the path, the opposite. It's the path of inwardness. It's, you know, uh, Augustine, when he says, God is nearer to me than I am to myself. Um, uh, it's the inner unconscious room of of the heart. Um, the claim is that, that that's, you know, where, where we find out that the point of our existence is not to do something, but it is to be, and in being, we know God. God is in the, the heart of our being, oh, is the claim. Oh. If, if Jesus came sort of fully equipped, he wouldn't have had to go out into the desert. You know what I'm saying? Like, Jesus himself had to go out there and, and sort of equip himself with these tools of um, mm. solitude to do the job or to figure out the truth to do the jobs uh, that, that, he was, that was required of him or, or to be. You know what I'm saying? So if, if if God himself has to go out into the desert to find God himself, mm-hmm. then how on earth do we think that we can just continue in the busyness and find him? It's, I mean, it's crazy that he has to go do that. In my opinion, if he's, if he's, if he's God, why would he do that? Why? It wouldn't make any sense. Totally. I, I agree. On the other hand, I, I also think in a weird way, like the opposite of everything that we're saying is true. Paradox. Isn't that weird where you come to, I know, <laughs> uh, or just nonsense and <laughs> contradiction. It's hard to tell if it's a, a generative par- paradox or not. But um, yeah, Nate, in some ways I would say we have to be on our guard not to work with too narrow a definition of the text, right? So obviously we have scripture and with, for a lot of uh, evangelicals, the tradition in which you and I were, were both raised, um, that is the text, right? The Bible is the text, but um, you know, read the Bible. What does it say? Um, Christ is the, uh, you know, eternal incarnate logos of God, right? Logos there being, you know, reason word, um, yeah, totally. Ar- deep architecture. Um, so the t- yeah, it's in a way. Yes, we do have these texts that are we are people of the book. Um, 
that are specific to us. I don't want to, you know, espouse a sort of wishy-washy, toothless pluralism that says, oh, with, you know, mysticism and monasticism, it's all the same. No, there are very real differences, um, which we could talk about maybe later, um, between Christian renunciation and Buddhist renunciation. Um, and those differences matter. And, and those di- differences are why I am and remain in the Christian tradition. Um, but th- I just don't want to confine, I don't want to take like that evangelical notion of the text is the Bible. You know, the text is, is, is written, um, beneath things and inside things and beyond things. And there is no outside of this text, um, in that sense. Uh, so there's, you know, the Jesus human nature by which he needs to go into the desert and do these, uh, you know, um, uh, uh, practices of solitude in order to, to prepare himself for what he has to do. But there's also the, the cosmic nature, um, of Christ, which is that, you know, there's nowhere that Christ is not. Um, and so uh, on the one hand is here's maybe this might even be a good place to end this, um, conversation, even as I want to say that I need these practices of solitude. Um, they are where I have, met and experienced something that uh, I want to say is true of God that I could not have seen without them. And that I think our culture ignores these things, uh, solitude and silence um, at its peril. Even though I want to say all of that, I also want to say, you know, God will find you when, if, and how God wants to find you, whether you're silent or whether you're, uh, you know, uh, sh- uh, shouting and plugging up every orifice in your body with input from iPhones and whatever. Um, mm-hmm. There's just, there's nowhere that you could, could go um, that, that some kind of revelation of God's self couldn't happen. Um, it's just that silence and solitude are time tested, you know, across world religious traditions um, ways where we, uh, Put, our, put ourselves in the path of that. But I would say that most of us were taught that God is sort of across this bridge. He's on the other side of the island. And, and, until, and until you have the bridge of Jesus and the prayer being said and the repentance of sin, you can't get to God, right? But so God so is the island. God is the bridge. God is the water. I mean, it's... Yes. There, so silence in the contemplative tradition puts you in touch with these things that breaks down... Uh, those careful, careful now, slippery slope. You, next thing you're going to start saying, God is the serpent. Then we're really in business. Uh, <laughs> no, it's helpful to sit, be able to say what, what God is not, um, as well. <laughs> you do want to affirm this, but, but what I'm saying though, is like, maybe God is so close to you that you just can't focus on him, but he's always been that close to you. And you, there's just been this blurry figure. You've never really quite known what it was, but it's been sort of chirping in your ear your whole life. And you're too busy trying to find a bridge and a boat and a paddle or whatever the hell you want to find to get somewhere else to find this thing. A Bible. A Bible, yeah. <laughs> a TED Talk. A, mi- a mission trip. Podcast. <laughs> a podcast. Sure. A podcast. Yeah. A worthless podcast. <laughs> Going into the void of of life. Yeah, you can universally access the divine reality and 
I think that's that's absolutely true. Silence, solitude, stillness, those are those are ways that people have been doing it for thousands of years. And I think those are those are still good ways. So if people are interested, uh, there's there's plenty more uh, that you can learn about this stuff. We are definitely not experts, not even close to at least even Paul's status. So, uh, oh gosh, <laughs> you're the, you're our expert. You're the best expert we've got. Uh, you guys are in trouble. <laughs> that's why we have like six people listening to this podcast. So <laughs> they all fell asleep. Uh, well, yeah. seven now that I'm. I'll, I'll... <laughs> Go back to your your fiance to listen to it. Hey, Paul, thanks for coming on, man. We really appreciate it. Yeah, dude. So good talking. Yeah. And if any listeners out there want to get a hold of Paul, it's impossible. You can't find him on (laughs) Facebook. You can't find him on Twitter. You can't find him. You can't even find him on the email. You have to flag him down on the street in San Luis Obispo. Ride a horse to your nearest Luddite community. Yeah, Ask. you can send a you can send a letter uh, addressed to who knows. <laughs> they don't and get, hope it gets. They to don't him. get letters. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I love it though, Paul. But please confirm that you don't have a Facebook, please. I I do not have a Facebook. Yes, or yes. a Twitter. Yes, bro, but not, you are not, not being I'm, a thought leader. Not because I'm. <laughs> I'm definitely not one of those. I'm not morally superior to those who do have them. I just uh, am um, a procrastinator, really. Okay, good. Don't 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 You're fine. don't apologize. Don't dive in. Yeah, please be be a city on a hill for us. Yeah, we are the rhinoceroses. <laughs> continue to be the rain. Yeah, my friend. Continue to rain on us all. It's just a medium suited for trolls, you know. Though all of it. Yeah, absolutely. And we, and we don't want to feed those trolls. No, we don't. No way. No, no way. we don't. So we put podcasts out. And <laughs> so this is it. This is it, listeners. This is your last interaction with Paul. Savor it. Wish him well. Put it to good use. To the stars. And uh, yeah, he'll be off in the woods <laughs> as soon as this podcast ends. So <laughs> love you, Paul. Thanks for coming on, man, and, uh, and uh, delighting us with your uh, wonderful brain and wonderful thoughts. I love you too, buddy. Thanks for having me. All right, guys. All right. Later. Bye.